0: Velkommen til live fra Det Kongelige Bibliotek. Mit navn er Lise Hansen, og jeg præsenterer denne podcast med highlights fra Det Kongelige Biblioteks kulturscene i Den Sorte Diamant. De traditionelle demokratier er ude af stand til at håndtere udfordringer, såsom klimaforandringer og den globale opvarmning. Samtidig betyder den teknologiske udvikling, at få mediegiganter som Facebook... Apple og Google kontrollerer store dele af den information, som borgerne er afhængige af. Det problematiserer den britiske professor David Runciman, der i denne podcast taler med chefredaktør for information, Rune Lykkeberg. Arrangementet fandt sted i samarbejde med Dagblad Information. God fornøjelse.
1: The first thing I want to ask you is just about the, the title uh, of, of, of your books, because you know we have a lot of these books. Yeah. Fascism is coming, democracy is dying, everything that is good is withering away, and Lord Voldemort is coming from everywhere in the face of Donald Trump. Uh, but your, your title is different, and the direction of your book is different. It's yeah. called
2: How Democracies End. It's called How Democracy Ends. You so, got it. So.
1: Why, did you, why did you choose that
2: approach? Uh, so, two, two reasons, really. I mean, it is true that the, the provocation for writing this book was the election of Donald Trump. And, and when it happened, even the day after it happened, there was a lot of coverage around the world saying that this is the end of something. This is, kind of, this is the disaster that we've been waiting for. And even at the time, I thought that it was probably a mistake to look for the event that's going to signal the end of democracy. So there's that feeling that something's going to happen. Times are tough, politics is strange at the moment, and there's all sorts of sort of dysfunction out there. And something's going to happen or someone's going to come along and that's going to signal the end. And that's not going to happen, right? There is not going to be an event or a person, and we'll all agree uh, it ended. So this book is partly to say if we are going to think seriously about the end of democracy, because at some point it will end, everything ends eventually, this is not the perpetual state of things, we need to think beyond people and events and think about something much more drawn out, something that might happen slowly, we might not even notice it, it might have ended and we didn't (laughs) wake up to it until after it ended. So this is partly just trying to get away from Thinking that there is the one thing that is the end. This is about the end as a drawn-out process. And then the other think, thinking behind this book is about Denmark. Um, <laughs> so a long time ago, this is this is maybe ten years ago. Um, I started thinking about a book that I then wrote in the aftermath of the financial crisis about democracies in crisis. And in that book, I quote Francis Fukuyama's line, where he says, "The goal of." human history is getting to Denmark. So all human societies are trying to be you. Um, and that that is the end point. You know, that's his kind of, you know, this is the teleology of politics. This is the best society that there has ever been. Um, and so the test of progress is how close you get to Denmark. And the measure of failure is whether you failed to get to Denmark. So this is what political failure means. It means you kind of got close and then you fell back. And in that book, I wrote, well, that's one way of looking at it. Um, (laughs) But there's another question, which is what would it be for Denmark to fail? So if this is the goal of human and social and political development, I wrote in that book, the big unanswered question of the 21st century is what does failure look like for the best societies, for the ones that look the most stable, the most prosperous. And my line there was, we have no idea because it's never happened. There has never been a society like Denmark, and Denmark here is a kind of emblem for the prosperous, stable, secure Western democracies that has failed because they have never failed. And so if we think history is a guide to this, we're wrong. There isn't, we can't look back to find an example of a a Danish style failure. So all I posed in that book was the thought that this is the great open question. We don't know, and the danger is that we think we know because we think we have historical examples to draw on. And so we get it wrong. So it's not, you know, it, this is the kind of Denmark of the mind. This is Denmark as the, as the symbol of Western democratic progress. But I genuinely think, I still think it is an open question. Do we actually know what failure will look like f- for us?
1: And that's why we're so happy that you wrote your next book, where, where, where you're exploring that question. This one yeah. here. Because uh, I, re- I read this little book. Uh, it's called *On Politics*, Politics, right? yeah. yeah pol- politics, and it's very interesting. Because I never thought of that—that uh, that you write in the book that there's the political success of Denmark, what we refer to as the Danish model. Yep. Uh, But then there's also like the cultural power of Denmark, the soft power, Uh, the the television shows, the design, the arts, uh, and the the knitwear, (laughs) knitwear, exactly. And now even, which to me is kind of surprising, the Danish cuisine, uh, absolutely. that I thought would never be a worldwide success. But I never never saw these two aspects together, the political success story and the soft power. Can you say a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, so I mean, it, it, you, the idea that Denmark is this kind of model is not simply that other countries should copy your political institutions, and that you know a secret to this success is somehow just to get the institutional structures right. It is the whole package, and it and it goes together. And the amazing thing about it, the thing that makes Denmark this miracle, and it is a miracle, um, is that it is this kind of success story across the board. Now, this is this is not the best political society to live in. This is the best society to live in, and politics has made that possible, but it's not the best society because you have the best politics. You don't have the best politicians. I don't think you have the best politicians (laughs) in the world. I don't know enough to judge, but I'm gonna guess that that's not a controversial statement. Uh, Not here. (laughs) uh, so, So it's that weird, almost sort of alchemy, which is you get the politics right, and you don't get the best politics, you get the politics right, and you get the best society, and then that can become the model, the thing that people aspire towards, so they, they don 't aspire to your politics, they aspire to your your way of life um, and it's an ama- I mean it is an amazing story, and, and by saying the big question is what would it be like for this society to fail it 's not because I want it to fail. <laughs> I really you know this is, this is an amazing record of human achievement, but it 's more that that is such an open question. And f- by fail, that includes just the question of what comes next. So even just thinking about, you know, if the Fukuyama view is that we're all heading to Denmark, <laughs> the question what comes after Denmark can get parked. It's like, you know, we'll deal with that when we get to Denmark yeah. and only Denmark is in Denmark, we've all got to get there. But for all of us, it's a real question. Something, something comes after this. What, I mean That's partly what this book is about. I'm not saying the end of democracy is the end of the world. I'm saying the end of democracy is the end of something, and something will come next.
1: And and very often when we think of uh, the end of democracy in the public sphere, we have these historical references to the 70s or more frequently even to the the 30s. You have these books out, bestsellers by Timothy Snyder on tyranny, and uh, most prominently, Perhaps uh, Madeline Albright's book, Fascism, and they're saying, "Well, we should look at history. We're yep. going back to the 30s. Fascism is coming back. It's like it's uh, it's like we're peeling the chicken uh, feather by feather, and, and just uh, in one moment we'll we'll be left with with disaster." But that's not how you look at it. No,
2: I mean that's so. That's why I say I don't think there is a historical model here. So yeah, the Madeline Albright book is called Fascism: A Warning from History. The Timothy Snyder book is one of the books that I'm writing this book against because he just you know, and he's a very sophisticated historian, but you know, there are people for whom Trump has made them slightly unhinged. And he just thinks that you can take these examples from the 30s of the way politics worked and say, these are the lessons for now. And what I argue in this book is that absolutely, I'm not denying that there are echoes. So you can, you can hear it in some of the political rhetoric. So some of the things that politicians say, when people look at Donald Trump and they see Mussolini, they're not wrong. You know, the, the gestures, I can't do them. The, the sort of, you have to have small fingers. The, 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 the gest- Trump could do it. <laughs> Trump could do it. The gestures are the same. The racism, it's not dog whistle racism. A lot of it is just explicit racism. The conspiracy theories, the rise that we see of anti-Semitism everywhere it's, it's prevalent in, in most Western societies now. So the rhetoric, absolutely, you can hear it. And then it's also striking that many of the institutions that are vulnerable now were the ones that were vulnerable then. So in Britain, our political institutions are pretty much the same as they were in the 1930s, when British democracy was really, really was under threat, even in Britain. Um, In the United States, they have the same institutions. We have the same political parties, Republicans versus Democrats, Labour versus Conservatives. So the politics looks the same. And it sounds the same, so the conclusion is, so when it goes wrong, it'll go wrong in the same way. But the difference is, everything else is not the same. <laughs> so I think the way to think about this is, we often think, how did the 1930s look to us? What, you know, what in our politics are we reminded of when we look at the 1930s? What you should do is ask, what, take someone from the 1930s, take someone from Britain or Denmark or America in 1935 and show them our world. And, and get them to miss out all the bits in between. And I think, so say you take someone from Britain in 1935 and you showed them contemporary British politics, they would say, oh, I recognize, you've got politicians just like we used to have. You know, you'd, like Boris Johnson, it reminds me like, there's, there's that kind of political rhetoric, you're, you know, the suspicion of foreigners, there's the racism, there's the this, there's the that, there's the kind of rabble rousing. And th- so they would say, that's familiar. And then, And then they would say, oh my God, the institutions, you haven't changed them at all. <laughs> it's like the House of Lords. It's the, so an American would say, but the Electoral College, you didn't, you didn't change it. Like You know it doesn't work, right? It hasn't worked for 200 years. You didn't change it. Uh, but your parties are the same, they got the same names. You didn't even change the names. And so there would be this kind of, wow. And then that person would go, but everything else is completely different. Oh my God, you're so rich. You are like, you are the richest. You're so old. (laughs) You live there. You're so healthy. What happened to all of the poverty and the violence? What happened to the the real risk of disaster? You changed everything about your societies and you didn't change your politics. Now, if that's true, then I think it's really unlikely that this politics is going to produce the same kind of you know, deep social and political change. So I argue in this book, you know, the, the difference between the 1930s and now is that we are 10 times richer everywhere in, in the prosperous Western democracies. So the, the example that I give, for someone who, in the United States who says, oh, thinking about 1930s in America, where America came really close to the collapse of democracy. You know, there was serious talk about the need for dictatorship. Uh, In 1930s America, the social and economic and demographic conditions are comparable to 21st century Egypt. So for an American to say, oh, we should draw lessons from 1930s America, they ought to also think that they can draw lessons from contemporary Egypt, and they don't. They think contemporary Egypt is a completely other, and that's a country where democracy really is ruined. Uh, But they don't, you never hear an American say, we should learn from what's gone wrong in Egypt. Well, that's the same as trying to learn from what went wrong in the 1930s. We are 10 times richer uh, than we were then. We are much older. So in America in the 1930s, the median age was about 24. Uh, So half of all Americans were 24 or younger. Now in America, it's 40. In Denmark, it's 43. In Greece, it's 46. In Italy, it's 47. In Japan, it's nearly 50. These are the oldest societies in human history. These are the richest societies. These are the best educated societies. These are the most peaceful societies. Now that doesn't mean that they can't go wrong. This is the how will Denmark fail question. But they're not gonna go wrong in the way that young, violent, poor societies go wrong because they collapse into violence, into civil disorder, into fascism. Fascism is a movement of political violence driven by young men with weapons. That is not the future that we face. But isn't there another way of uh, claiming the analogy,
1: which is, which is, you could say that after the Second World War, you made the UN, you had the Declaration yeah. of Human Rights, there was the liberal consensus. We are not racists. We cannot be racist. We have looked into the beast of humankind. So there was this: as long as we remember the Second World War, then we will not be racist. Then we will understand that human rights are both protecting us against the worst and, uh, and giving the opportunity to live out the best mm. in, in, the human, in the human species, but that we're kind of forgetting this yeah. uh, memory of the Second World War, that the memory of the Second World War is fading away. So now you see racism creeping back and we're not as alert to it as we would be earlier.
2: So I definitely think just because we're richer, older, more peaceful, better educated, does not mean that we're immune to racism and the other, the, you know, the worst strands of politics that were there in the 1930s. So definitely it would be a mistake to think, I definitely don't believe that we can't go back to the 1930s because we can't start believing those things again. My argument is more that even if we do believe those things, we don't act them out in the way that mm. would happen back then, which is basically what you get is militarized civil breakdown and violence. So that, that is true, but I, yeah, I do tend to agree with you that the other thing that we, we forget is that what got us out of the 1930s <laughs> was war. <laughs> and you, know, you, don't, you don't go from the 1930s to now through a process of peace. You go there through a process of war. And the great success story of democracy, the, sort of the, the 30 glorious years, as they're sometimes called, yes. from kind of 46, 47 through to the mid 70s, where you know, social democracy was built in Europe where we achieved incredible economic growth with relatively full employment, the kind of Keynesian model worked. That is all a product of the experience of war, both the memory of war, but also the institutions that war created. War creates welfare states. War creates social consensus and social cohesion. So as we move further away from that, it's inevitable that the thing that glued that democratic success story together starts to fray. And then one of the big challenges for us for all, I think, Western societies is if one of the lessons of the 20th century is the precondition of democratic success is war, what do we do when there isn't gonna be a war? Because I, you know, it's, it, you'd have to be a lunatic to say, well, we need another war and then, yeah. we can, you know, yeah. then we can revive our democracies. so let's assume that war is not an option. So we can't do it through the collective experience of violence, we have to find something new Because if you look at the historical record, you can't actually find an example of a democracy really reconfiguring itself, reinventing itself, re-establishing fundamental democratic institutions without having been through some deep, essentially violent trauma. So we're not gonna have that trauma, I hope. So how are we gonna do it? It's a new challenge for us. There isn't, to, to use, I'm a historian saying this, to use history, as our guide would be a huge mistake. I heard you were
1: discussing that with your friend, friends, Chris and Helen, on, on the podcast. And I was, uh, I was listening to it and I said, what about climate change, what shouting? about climate change? Because you were asking for a disaster yeah. that would force democracies yeah. to revitalize themselves, yeah. Yeah. to reinvent themselves. Yeah. But that was on the premise that the, our compassion for destruction is so big mm. that we don't want another war in order to face uh, yeah. In, in order to save democracies. So, so when I was listening to it, I was thinking, what about climate change? Is this not the disaster we've been waiting for to reinvent democracy?
2: I mean, it's a really good question, and I have a chapter in this book about catastrophes, and you know, some catastrophes galvanize democracies, and or the threat of some catastrophes galvanize democracies, and other catastrophes paralyze them, kind of freeze them. Yeah. We seem to be, weirdly, at that point where climate is not galvanizing us, it's kind of freezing us. We're sort of in this defensive crouch where you know, we're aware something bad is coming down the line, but our response is not to, to act, it's to kind of just think that we can hope, wish it away. I do think part of the problem with climate change is that it doesn't have the time frame that those historic examples have. So there is that view of democracies, that democracies always do the wrong thing until the last moment and then they do the right thing. Churchill, one of Churchill's lines is, you can count on Americans to do the wrong thing until they finally <laughs> arrive at the right answer to the problem. And it's quite a record of, you know, one way you can describe democracies is they don't come up with the answer to the problem by being democracies. They make more mistakes than other systems, but they make so many mistakes, they eventually <laughs> come upon the right answer. But that's not going to work with climate. like keep on making mistakes until we reach the moment where we have no choice but to do the right thing, because it'll be too late. So if you want to find a historical example of democracies acting 20 or 30 years ahead of time to preempt some disaster, there isn't one. And you tell me if you think there is one, but I don't think that there is one. I mean, there are examples of democratic far-sightedness after the Second World War, the creation of the institutions around. Bretton Woods, and you know the international financial order, the United okay, Nations, yeah. as, as a set of you know, institutional hopes, and with some delivery as well. You know, there is a way in which democracies can kind of think long term, but the galvanising event had already happened. Yeah. Preemption. There is no evidence that democratic systems are good at preemptions. At preemption, there is some evidence that autocratic systems are better at it. I mean, there is at least some evidence. It's at least possible that the Chinese system is better equipped to tackle climate change if what you want is action now to forestall something that's happening. Because after all, the Chinese regime is thinking about its long-term survival. Democratic governments are thinking about getting through the next election. I think it is the case that there is more more capacity for long-term thinking in some autocratic regimes. It's a bleak message. I think it's also much riskier because the thing that autocratic regimes are much worse at is changing if they get it wrong. So you're more likely to get the preemptive action. And if the preemptive action is wrong under the Chinese system, they will stick with it because their legitimacy depends on not admitting that they're wrong. If a democratic government does it and gets it wrong, we'll kick them out and get someone else in to do it. The trouble is they're not gonna do it because the the timeline is 20, 30 years ahead. So it's at least possible. I mean, I think this is probably the bleakest I hope the story, it's the version. Yeah, which is that <laughs> this system that we've had, we haven't had it for that long, somewhere between 50 and 100 years, this way of doing yes. politics, which has survived these, these, essentially these three or possibly four great threats. The First World War, the Great Depression, the Second World War and the Cold War. And it was well equipped in its different ways. And even the Cold War, it wasn't like at the beginning of the Cold War the democracies worked out how they were going to win it 40 <laughs> years down the line. They just kept chopping and changing through the Cold War and they outlasted the rival regime, which eventually made the mistakes that it couldn't recover from. But those are nothing like climate change. So we have, we have a lot of examples that this is the place that you want to be under those conditions. I would still rather be in a democracy when it all goes wrong. <laughs> you know, I still think that democratic systems are the best places to be in worst case scenarios because they're much more adaptable. But at preventing the worst from happening, I'm not sure. But
1: I think I would like to approach it from the other way and say that if, we, if you uh, told people in 100 years ago what yeah. we have achieved through the 20th century, yeah. then they would say, well, that can't be done. You know, yeah. they, they would say yeah. the established, you know, yeah, liberal democracy, the social state, the end of poverty, the, the way you made societies extremely yeah peaceful, that is something that people would not believe that we would be able to do. And that's how I would like to approach climate change yeah. and say, we don't have an analogy for that, but we've done things that surprised us before. Uh, and, and if you go at, from that perspective, you could say that what you have now is the report from the IPCC yeah. saying, you've known this at least since limits of growth from 1972. You've known this for uh, all my life, 44, 45, five years. Uh, And now you actually, now you actually have the last warning within these 10, 12 years. And I believe that in democracy, you can do it more efficiently than in dictatorship because they must deliver on economic growth all the time to maintain legitimacy, whereas we can get more legitimacy to difficult decisions. Mm. That is, of the success of Denmark, uh, yeah. by the way. So if you look at it from that perspective, could you not say that this would be the time?
2: I'm hopeful. Um, yeah, I know. And it's good that you're hopeful because I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> the stakes uh, are high. I, I, and I, would, and I, I I totally don't dismiss that. I absolutely kind of I completely take your point, and you know, I was saying, take someone from the 1930s and show them our world. And indeed, they would say, I mean, I think they would say, like most of this is simply miraculous, and all you have to do now is adapt the politics a bit too, and then you'll <laughs> have kind of completed the. Uh, and there is that question about you know thinking about it the other way around: take someone from hundred years in the future, and what would they think about us now? And you know, the, the, their urgency, what they would they would be screaming at us yeah. to act. Um, but that you, what you were saying reminded me of what Al Gore says at the end of um, An Inconvenient Truth. Yeah. So he, so he doesn't say, when he says we, he means Americans, but let's say it was the world. Uh, but he says, we defeated fascism, we defeated communism, we conquered polio, we defeated hunger, we enfranchised women, we, you know, like he just goes through the list of dem- the, the great democratic achievements, the things that seem to be impossible. And then he ends by saying, we did that, We can do this. And it's inspiring, but there is at least a possibility that this is not like any of those and that there is a danger because the thing about those is that they were driven by immediate political imperatives. There was a a real urgency to it. And if the urgency now is the IPCC saying, this is your final, 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 final warning. We've been telling you it's your final warning for 12 years, but this time we mean it. There is no evidence that that works, that that galvanizes. Um, and there is that kind of disaster fatigue issue with climate. You know, the, the thing about climate change is no one can claim that it's somehow not been discussed or you know, that the issues haven't been out there. It's not some hidden or secret disaster. It's fully in view and we don't hear it. So insisting on it more and more, I think probably that something has to happen and we were talking about this earlier. So this summer was hot. Uh, it was hot here, right? Yes. It was very hot in Britain. Uh, in Britain, people just went, oh, that's nice. <laughs> it, was, it was described in the newspapers as a nice summer, yeah. uh, a barbecue summer. Uh, it had zero political effect because people were thinking about Brexit. But you say here, you know, that it, it has... Uh, definitely, uh, yes. Uh, but it's going to have to be worse than that. This is the, you know, the challenge for 21st century democracies is if we think the thing that will galvanise us is the crisis that makes us realize exactly what's at stake. It's quite hard to think what those will be because even if you take the 2008 financial crisis, that was really bad. Now that took the world to the brink of something that could have been absolutely catastrophic. But it wasn't bad enough to change the system. We still have the same system that we had in 2008 in terms of international financial governance, in terms of the risks that are out there in the banking system and so on. So 2008 was not bad enough to galvanize democratic change. What it was bad enough to do was to galvanize democracies to stop it from getting worse. Actual change is harder than that.
1: Sometimes when I read your book, it's not like this is the end of democracy and how sad it is. The old world was good, the new world is evil. Uh, But when I read the other books that are written by very enlightened scholars and profiled intellectuals, they're like defending the the ancien regime you know the old order against these newcomers yeah. yeah yeah and and they are acting and writing as if liberal democracy has just served us perfectly well yeah. over the last 3 or 4 decades and when now we talk about climate change, and it hasn't served us yeah. perfectly well, you see the financial crisis yeah. hasn't served us perfectly well. If you look at the gains from globalization, it hasn't served
2: no, us. The, inequality has ridden, risen inexorably over that period. You're so right. should
1: we not be criticizing liberal democracies instead of defending it against Trump and Orbán?
2: Uh, so those are two separate questions. Yes. <laughs> I don't want to, by answering yes to the first, I don't want to... Uh, <laughs> but uh, I mean, absolutely part of what I'm trying to argue in this book, because I think there's a real danger that we think that democracy is this thing that has served many, you know, many societies and many people in those societies very well. We are better off, we are healthier, we are more secure. And, this, and that's true pretty much across the board. I mean, improvements in health. Of course, there are areas where it, it, you know, it's very unequally distributed, but taken in the round, we are longer lived, healthier. We are, we are definitely living in more peaceful, less violent societies. Uh, and these are public goods and public benefits, so we've done well by it. But some people have done better. The danger is, like you say, those people are the ones who are kind of really pushing the kind of "isn't this the end of the world" story. And what they want to suggest is, like, it's either democracy as we have known it, or it's catastrophe. It's yes. like it's very binary. It's kind of we either hold on to this thing called democracy that we remember from the 1990s or the 19 sort of 60s that really worked, um, and we hold on to the whole package, or if we give up any of it, the whole thing will lapse into something that we call authoritarianism. And what I'm trying to say in this is that's the wrong approach. It's a kind of failure of imagination to think that there are only two choices out there, this thing that we've known and something terrible. So one possibility is that this this package is over, right? That, That whole set of institutions and ways of doing politics those kinds of political parties, those kinds of political platforms, a kind of left-right politics where the central divisions are between packages offered to different social groups, where the mainstream media sets a kind of agenda and offers a critical voice to government, where you have parliamentary or legislative politics with a sort of executive there. That package, which worked really well in the second half of the 20th century, that's probably done. I mean, I don't think that's working anymore. The The parties are being hollowed out. Almost everywhere, it may not be true in Denmark, legislative politics, it's really hard to pass any laws. You know, like executives are taking more and more decisions around the world. Yeah. Legislatures are really struggling. The idea that, that newspapers and the mainstream media are kind of the bulwark between the people and their representatives, that's gone. But if we mainstream
1: think, newspapers, yes. Yeah, but if
2: we think it's either, yeah, <laughs> it's either that whole package yes. or nothing, then we will cling on to the package and we'll, get, we'll exactly. get the nothing. So we have to make some choices here. We have to think about other permutations. Some of it we have to give up on. Some of it we have to add to. But We don't think like that. We call it this, and I know I'm doing it in the title of my book, but <laughs> partly it's to say our imaginations have to expand to include a range of possibilities for democracy, including the transition from this thing we call democracy to something else. Whereas if we just think there is this thing called democracy or there is nothing, then we will end up with nothing. And I do agree with you that there's that kind of defense. I think it's particularly, there's a kind of group of people who grew up in the 1990s, who were kind of students in the 1990s who think that's how the world's meant to be. So the 1990s is like an outlier decade. (laughs) There's never been a decade, like Bill Clinton's presidency in the history of the world is this kind of eight years, there has never been anything like those eight years where it was peaceful and prosperous and the most sort of outrageous things that happened were either Monica Lewinsky or O.J. Simpson. I mean, it was, the 1990s are not coming back. The world of Bill Clinton and Bono and Tony Blair, it's gone. It was just a kind of, it was a passing phase. But there is a generation now who are kind of, prominent public intellectuals for whom that's how the world's meant to be. Tony Blair is one of them, right? (laughs) Uh, And every time Tony Blair intervenes in British politics and says, I'm gonna find a way to take us back to what it was like, that's that's the exceptional decade. Just like the 30 years after the Second World War were the exceptional decades. The success of modern democracy is a 50-year story in a, what, 2,000, 5,000, 10,000, 80,000 year history, you know, like this is, this is just a couple of generations that we've had this thing, so if we cling on to it to the bitter end, it will be the bitter end. There's one
1: part of me that thinks dem- democracy as we know it doesn't deliver on efficiency and doesn't deliver on legitimacy. You can see it cannot solve the problems that we expect it to solve and you can see voters are turning against it. But there's another part of me thinking, well, I was born in 1974. Mm. In 1975, there was this trilateral commission that yeah. published this report. Yeah. I love this a, report. I love it
2: too, actually. <laughs> the, <laughs> we both read it, yeah. right.
1: <laughs> The 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 crisis of the democracy, and it you was know, like, It makes me look
2: cheery, right, that <laughs> report.
1: Yeah. But if you look at that, the re, what they wrote in 1975, yeah the societies were not governable yeah. that people were demanding too much from their leaders, that societies were becoming too democratic to have a democratic state mm-hmm. you'd say this has been going on for four or five decades mm. isn't that correct
2: so i do think so i agree i think that the 1970s is a really important part of this story and in some ways you know the crisis of democracy in the 1970s was worse than it is now so some things that we don't have now that they did have then so the thing that they all thought in that commission was gonna kill democracy was inflation. That was the great fear, stagflation, but essentially inflation. They thought Europe was gonna go the way of Latin America. So when inflation reached, I mean, in Britain, I think it peaked at about 28%, um, <laughs> which you know it's, it's kind of hard to imagine now. And there was this fear that 28 is just one step away from 48, which is one step away from 1,000, and then you get pinochet kind of thing. That was the, there was a genuine fear of a coup, I mean, seriously, and there was, you know, the, uh, we now know there were was, was serious plans in Britain uh, to replace the Labour government with uh, either the Duke of Edinburgh, or I think it was Mountbatten. Um, uh, there, was, there was much more terrorism in the 1970s than there is now. Routine domestic political terrorism, the Red Brigades, Bader-Meinhof, terrorism on the British mainland, in a way that you know, we think we're living in this great terrorist age, it's nothing compared to the 1970s. There was much, much more risk that mass unemployment would destabilise whole society. So there was this, I think, this sense in the mid 1970s that democracies were right on the edge. And then there were these ideological alternatives. You know, the right seriously contemplated the possibility of having to suspend the rule of law in elections. On the left, there were still many people who thought that a, an armed revolution was the answer. So there were also radical alternatives that were pressing in. And Western democracy survived all of that. And in hindsight, it turns out that what the 1970s did was it killed Soviet communism. That actually you can trace the collapse of the Soviet regime to its inability to survive the economic crisis of the mid-70s. That was the point at which the Eastern European states got sufficiently heavily in debt that there was no way out because they couldn't grow their way out. And I think that's still somewhere in the back of our minds. There's that feeling that, yeah, we survived that. Um, And this isn't as bad as that, actually. And so one other reason that I wrote this book was, um, I don't think that by electing Donald Trump or by voting for Brexit, that people are signaling that they've given up on democracy. I think one of the things they're signaling is they think democracy can survive anything. It's like, why would you vote for Donald Trump unless you believe that American democratic institutions have survived worse in the past, and they can survive this. I don't think that the people who voted for Trump want him to kill American democracy. They want him to shake it up and then move on. So there is, I actually think in, in that kind of story where, like you say, haven't we been living with this for 30 or 40 years, that in our current crisis, there are the apocalyptic people. Yes. But actually, I think there's a deep strain of complacency too. I mean, a sense that, like it's, it's, so the, the Al Gore version of it would be not we conquered this, but we survived this. You know, like we muddled our way through this. Like they didn't kill us, they didn't kill us, they didn't kill us. In the mid-1970s, every single Western government in the entire world fell. So there was a change of government in every single democratic state, uh, whether it was Watergate, you know, and a lot of it through scandals and crises and a complete collapse of trust in democratic institutions. It looked like the end. It was fine. Uh, So there is, it's almost that crying wolf thing that 40 years of that leaves us to feel we don't know with this one. There's part of us that thinks, oh, Donald Trump, that's the worst that we've ever seen. And I think for many of us, there's also a part that thinks, it's just just democracy, right?
1: (laughs) I sometimes think uh, if we make too much out of Donald Trump, Try to, if I follow We definitely there.
2: spend too much time yeah. talking about them.
1: No, but, but I think he's been president of the US for t- two years yeah. now. He hasn't started a war. Some of his predecessors started a war within the first two years of their presidency. Yeah. He hasn't started a war. American economy is doing fine.
2: That's it, thanks to Obama.
1: Yeah, But still... But yeah, I know. it's not Look, I mean,
2: luck and timing in politics is a great skill, uh, right?
1: Yeah, exactly, but economy is doing great. They're creating jobs. Um, he hasn't started any wars yeah. there's a
2: lot of talking and
1: we have a lot of drama yeah. but do we make too much out of him
2: uh, i so, so i half agree with you i mean that's part of the point of saying where th- this view uh which comes and goes during his presidency but it's been repeated like, this is the end, this is the limit. I can't believe he did this. This must be the final straw. You know, that constant, yeah. from almost the first week, you know, <laughs> the, the first things that he did. And I think that is overreacting. I think that the institutions have held up okay. You know, the Kavanaugh hearings, that was, you know, that the, insofar as Donald Trump is fundamentally changing American politics, it's at the judicial level. You know, that's gonna be 20, 30 years to play out what's happened in the courts. So a lot of it is happening beneath the surface. The Supreme Court is just you know, the visible example of what, what's been going on there. But I agree, nothing too terrible has happened. But I think we should also, there is a, I write about it this at the beginning of my book, that even when I heard him give his inaugural address, like yes. I watched it and I mean, I don't know how many people watched it in real time, but it was completely terrifying. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like it was like a kind of cartoon version of fascism with the flags and the gestures and what he was saying. You know, This is the day when we've taken power back from Washington, we've taken power back from the parties. This country is in ruins and we're going um, kind to of stamp out the... And then when we watched it, I watched it in Cambridge, and then we watched it again. It took me 15 minutes to be normalized. So then the second time I watched it, I thought, oh yeah, I misremembered that. It wasn't as bad as, <laughs> as I thought because I'd already heard it once and I was yeah. waiting for the fascism. It's like, oh. He's not a fascist. He's just, he's just saying kind of quite populist things. I, I do also think there is a risk of normalization. So I agree that nothing terrible has happened yet. And American democracy can definitely kind of, I don't think it can go back to where it was before Trump, but it can definitely survive this. But I think it's also, we need to remember that Donald Trump is president of the United States. You know, they, they just, just that fact, I mean, this is Donald Trump. This is not... Uh, and he is unlike not just any president, but any major politician, not just in my lifetime, but I think in, in modern political history. There is a recklessness to him that we have never seen before. There is a kind of fearlessness to him, for better or worse. There is a shamelessness to him. So even the most shameless politicians were still shameable. There was something, all human beings have something that if you can get them on that, they'll kind of, And with Trump, I think we haven't found it because it's not there. So there is, I still think that though nothing too terrible has happened, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that within the Trump presidency, there is something for which there isn't a historical precedent. Um, I write in my book about the fact that we're living through a kind of great age of conspiracy theories where we hear them all the time. It's almost become the default explanation in lots of bits of politics that if things aren't going your way, it's because some group, it's on the left as well as on the right, you know, whether it's the banks or whether it's, you know, it, it could be anyone, it's foreigners, it's often the Jews, it's got a whole kind of range of it. And con- there have always been conspiracy theories, particularly in American politics, but there was this kind of tendency that people would take it in turns. So when your team won, Uh, the other side were allowed to be the conspiracy theorists. So when George W. Bush was president, then Democrats got their turn and they were able to say, oh, he's in the pay of the oil industry and he started the Iraq war for oil and there's a secret agenda there and multinational big business is running him. We wrote then, all that? Yeah. And then when Obama was president, I suspect you weren't on this one, uh, Republicans got their turn and they were allowed to say, he, actually, he's a secret Muslim. Uh, he wasn't born in the United States. He doesn't have a birth certificate. His birth certificate has been faked and you know all of that. When Clinton was president, there were all those conspiracy theories about Clinton and the secret drug running to. But there has never been a conspiracy theorist in the White House before. So this is new. So the taking in turns is finished, because when your side win, you're meant to stop being the conspiracy theorist, because now you have the power. And you let the people who don't have the power say, oh, that Donald Trump, he's secretly in the pocket of this or that. But Trump's mode of governance is conspiracy theory. So that's how he operates. And from the day one of his presidency, he's just carried on as though he lost. I mean, that's the, so you know, he's the only president in history who won the election, and he said it was fixed because Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, and he said she only won the popular vote because dead people were on the electoral rolls. So you're meant to say that when you lose. <laughs> but, so you do have in Trump, I think, something that is relatively new. I mean, we see it, you know, we see it in Orban, we see it with Modi, we see it with Erdogan, it's, it's the kind of, in the lifeblood of populism that what you say is, because I represent the people, if I'm not getting my way, because I represent the majority, it must be because some small group is stopping me and they must be doing it in secret because we're all out on display in full view. So it's not just Trump, but in the context of American democracy, this is new. And I don't know where it goes, and it doesn't, I think, I don't think it necessarily leads to disaster, but it doesn't lead back to a kind of reestablishment of democratic norms and proprieties where people take it. I think the take it in turns bit, that may be part of the package that's gone.
1: There are two readings of the effects of of Donald Trump. One is that he's kind of reminding us uh, of of the basic virtues of uh, of d- democracy and recognizing the argument of the other and restoring a, a public. and And people are definitely becoming more aware of of whether they're reading full, fake or true news. And and yeah. and there's the other reading that says that though people dissociate themselves from Trump, they tend to get a little inspired by him. They like you say, he's, he's, oh, he's horrible, we don't want yeah. to be like Trump, but why don't we just say how we feel, you know? It's like he's a temptation to, to most politicians that you can do a little bit like, like Donald Trump. Do you see people getting inspired by Donald Trump or politicians?
2: So I think that's a dangerous route to go down unless you are shameless, you know, it's sort of, people who try and ape Trump but aren't as fearless as him are going to come unstuck. Um, you, you hear it, you, so in Britain the line is that Boris Johnson is our Trump. He's really not, I think. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and Trump, you know, Trump so you, you certainly, you hear sort of rhetorical flourishes that, that have that sort of quality to them and you see politicians who are clearly trying to appeal in the same kind of way to some of the same constituencies. But I do think with Trump, apart from anything else, the way Trump got elected, which was just to kind of run against the entire political establishment. I mean, the remarkable, we almost forget it now. So Trump defeating Hillary Clinton was kind of weird. And he did lose, after all, I mean, he did lose the popular vote. And he he won just because of, and who knows how they did it, but they managed to persuade about 100,000 people in Wisconsin and Ohio and other places not to vote for Hillary. The really amazing part of the Trump story was how it's, he saw off those 15 Republican candidates. You know, he started in that crowded field. And one by one, he just took them down. It's partly the American system that allows you to do that. But I don't see anything comparable to that, that kind of scorched earth approach. I mean, even Boris Johnson, he's a conventional conservative party politician who's kind of running from one wing of the party. He's appealing to certain parts of the electorate. He's claiming to be someone who's kind of telling truths that other people don't dare speak. But he's not, I mean, Trump just scythed his way through <laughs> the Republican Party. He took them all out. Um, and again, I think a politician who kind of thinks that they're doing that, you actually have to do it. <laughs> you know, like If even one of them is left standing at the end, you're gonna go down. And he, so there is, I, I wouldn't say I admire Trump for it, although I do I, mean, I do think it's a remarkable achievement what he did. I don't think winning the presidency was a remarkable achievement. I think he was up against a terrible candidate, and I don't think he won in the sense that you know, like it was just... But winning the Republican nomination from, from the day he got off the plane and said, I'm running for president, to becoming the Republican candidate and persuading the Republican party they had no choice but to back him, I don't see any politician elsewhere in the Western world who's doing that. I would say people like Modi and Erdogan are the closest uh, to that, but they're, you know, in very different settings and very different kind of you know, s- s- different things are at stake in those regimes. But I don't see it. I don't see a European Trump.
1: When you look at, there are different explanations to the Trump phenomenon and and uh, connected to that, the crisis of American yeah. establishment. And yeah. there, some would say that's because of immigration. That yeah. you have so many people coming into. To to America, and they never they never had a national vote whether they wanted this kind of country. It was yeah. just decided. Others would say that it's because of fake news. Yeah, and then you have the explanation that it's because of economic inequality that you've mm. been uh, that all the gains have been going to the top, yeah. um, to the, to the top for, for for ages, and the hollowing of the, the middle class. Yeah. Um. W- what ki- what kind of expla- what what do you think of these explanations?
2: Well, I don't think there's one single explanation no. for it. So it's not, I mean, people who want to, again, it's that sort of all or nothing thing. We, you know, we think that politics should give us straight answers to straight questions. Is this the end of democracy? Yes or no. You know, is Facebook good for democracy? Yes or no. Is this all about immigration? And the answer is always yes and no. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it just is that there's there is a combination of things going on here. No question that immigration is one of the features that these different movements in different parts of the world have in common, um, that they're being driven by a sense, exactly as you say, I don't think it's that there is more immigration. The evidence in the American case is that there's slightly less than there was maybe 10 years ago. It's that people were not asked whether they wanted it or not. And definitely, that was a big part of the Brexit vote. I don't think it was that people in Britain were just saying, enough with this immigration. They were saying, you never asked us. And this is our one chance to give a, a view on that. I think the 40-year story of rising inequality is part of it. So it's these, you know, part of what's driving this kind of scorched-earth anti-establishment politics is that sense that we've been through a whole set of political cycles, but some questions were never asked. Immigration is one. That basic you know, allowing inequalities just to spread over that period. And then since the financial crisis, which is the key political event of our time, I mean, that is 2008. We're living in the post-2008 world, not the post you know, post 9-11 world, that wasn't the event that changed the world. The, the, The fall of Lehman Brothers was the event that changed the world. And that sense that post that crisis, which was meant to be the moment of truth, we never got our moment of truth. You know, we patched up the system, we bailed out the banks, we held it together, we kept the euro on the road, you know, we stopped Greece from falling out of the euro at huge cost, you know, enormous social cost, and no one ever really paid the price. Um, there wasn't a kind of cathartic moment. There wasn't a, a moment of truth. I think that's a big driver of this too. And in those circumstances, you then give people an opportunity to do something decisive. It almost doesn't matter what it is. <laughs> now the thing about Brexit, what made it so dangerous, was that in a world in which there are no yes or no answers, it was a yes or no question. If, you, you know, if the problem with our politics is we try and make everything binary, do not ask a binary question that compels you to do what the, the answer says. And you see that with Brexit, which, which is you take a binary question and then you have to act on the answer and you discover it's not binary at all. So I think there is a real risk and we, you know, it's not a coincidence, I think, that you've seen this in the West unleashed in the two countries that have first-past-the-post politics. So the two countries where you do not have proportional representation, where there is a winner and there is a loser in an election or in a referendum, So in Britain, we expect our politics to give a straight answer. We don't like that lot, so we'll have that lot. We don't want to be in the EU, so we'll leave the EU. We don't want Hillary to be president, so Trump will be president. The binary electoral systems have produced, I think I can say this, the worst political outcomes. Because it's not, you should be grateful you do not have, I know it's frustrating to have proportional representation. My God, it's better.
1: I, I do think we're quite happy with the system that we have and th- You are and that you have yeah, I think so. I, I think we don't we don't uh, we don't really need uh, presidential elections or we don't need these binary choices. You know we had a lot of votes for the European Union yeah. that, that, that that were yeah. that were binary. Uh, but actually you wrote an essay, I think it's two years ago, yeah. called The Education Cleavage. Yeah. And uh yeah. I think you, to, to a certain extent, predicted uh, the election of Donald Trump or at least what was in yeah. that essay. When I asked you for the three explanations, I wanted to give you a chance of offering your own fourth explanation, the, the education, because yeah. you were kind of prophetic.
2: So I did write, I read that between Brexit and Trump. So yeah. It was, uh, August
1: 2016. Yeah. I
2: mean, right. and it was because the evidence had already emerged that in the Brexit vote, the strongest indicator of how someone was likely to vote. So the number one strongest indicator, if you could only ask one question of an anonymous voter, someone behind a screen, and you could only ask them one question, you're not allowed to ask that person, how did you vote? And even if you did, they might lie. So you can only ask one question. Um, What question would give you the best likelihood of then guessing how they voted? So it turns out the question you should ask is, do you support the return of capital punishment? So that had the strongest correlation the worst question you could ask is, what gender are you? That told you nothing, because it, it was a fairly gender neutral vote. If you ask someone, how did you vote? That wouldn't really tell you, because Conservative and Labour voters were both split. If you ask someone how much you earn, that would tell you quite a lot, but not a huge amount. If you ask, how old are you? That told you a lot. But the second best question after the capital punishment question is, did you go to university? So you ask, did you go to university? And if the answer comes back, yes, there was a 70% chance that person voted remain. And if the answer comes back, no, there's a 70% chance, slightly less. Uh, no, it's the other way around, slightly more, cause of the, but roughly a 70% chance that that person voted leave. Whereas gender, it was 50-50. On sort of class or income grounds, it's about 60-40. On age, the older someone was, the more likely they were to vote leave but the education one was the strongest one. And I said at the time, this is clearly going on in the United States too. And it was confirmed after Trump's election, which is same thing. If you could only ask one question, and I don't think the capital punishment question works in the United (laughs) States. Not in America at least. (laughs) I don't know how that one plays (laughs) out. The question is, did you go to college? That's the single strongest indicator of someone. So there was a thought that, oh, Trump voters were the left behinds. Well, some of them were the left behinds, and some of them are really affluent people dotted all over the United States. Same with Brexit. Some of the Brexit voters are people in the north of England living in the former industrial heartlands with a strong sense that kind of globalization hasn't delivered for them. Some of them are quite young, young people who don't see the prospect of a secure job. But some of them were property-owning, conservative voting people living in the south of England, who'd done very well out of the last 20 or 30 years, who had pensions and shares, you know, stocks and shares. They only had one thing in common, those two groups. Neither went to university. Because in Britain, 50 years ago, 2% of the population went to university. In, in about 1964, it was 2%. Um, so anyone who was university-going age didn't go then. Now, a lot of those people have become prosperous, successful, and rich. Um, but they tended to be Brexiteers. And it's a really difficult question. I don't think we've quite got to the answer to this. is Why is that the thing that connects exactly. them? Exactly. Because they have such different experiences. And their interests are so different. So one lot is property-owning, pension-drawing, you know, well-off, <laughs> quite cosmopolitan often people living in places like Surrey, quite near to London. And some of them might be sort of... 32-year-old men who feel that their prospect of getting a secure job has gone and living on you know, short-term contracts in sort of Yorkshire or Lancashire. You put that, they got nothing in common. They, they don't meet each other and go, oh, we never went to university. We've got so much to talk about. <laughs> like, so, so what is it? Um, exactly. So it's one of the indicators that our politics is being driven more by cultural issues and sort of potentially identity issues necessarily than material issues. So it seems that, One thing about going to university is you leave home, often, and not always, you can go to your university. But people who go to university are more likely to have kind of... And leave home in the sense that leaving your hometown. Leaving your hometown. You do kind of encounter people who, you you may not think like them when you arrive, but you often (laughs) think like them by the time you leave. It's true that to have a university education is to be well set up for a networked, interconnected world. You're more comfortable kind of moving through it. So even if you're not doing particularly well now, you kind of see the advantages. So students in Britain are overwhelmingly in favour of staying in the European Union, even though many of them are much, much worse off than their parents, who own homes, they're never going to own homes, who have secure jobs, a lot of these students are not going to have secure jobs, but who wanted to leave. So you can't really do it on, and it's the same in the United States. So some of it is cultural. I mean, there was an article in The Economist about this that said, we don't actually know what happens at university. I work in the university. What happens? Some mysterious alchemy goes on there and people kind of come out uh, with these uh, political views. But the other crucial thing about it I mean, this is the reason why this is all new. I think it's new in this country. Uh, It's certainly new in Britain, is that that couldn't be the great electoral divide 50 years ago because nobody went to university. And it couldn't be the great electoral divide 25 years ago because 20% of people went to university, but 80% didn't. And so in those societies, most members of parliament, most elected representatives went to university, and almost all the people who voted for them didn't. So now we have parts of the population where half of people are going to university and half of people aren't. But all MPs go to university now. I mean, it's a thing that people kind of don't notice about our politics. So in Britain, in the House of Commons, it used to be that lots of people there... came in without university degrees, through the trade unions, through the army. If you were on the the right of politics, the army was your route in. If you're on the left, you would leave school, get a job, work in a union, and then come into parliament. Now, it's pretty much an entry requirement to have a university degree. So parliament is like half the country. So if I was in the other half of the country, I would think this system was fixed. Um, Exactly. uh, And and it's really dangerous. Um, And part of the reason, Brexit is such a nightmare for the British Parliament is that the British Parliament, the members of Parliament, including the Conservative members of Parliament, are overwhelmingly for staying in the European Union because they all went to university. No. And they're terrified of pissing off all the people who didn't go to university because they don't understand them. They don't even know what, the, you know, it's such a shock to them to discover that. So you've got a parliament that doesn't want to leave the European Union, that's going to leave the European Union, because it is so conscious that it doesn't represent the half of the country that didn't go to university. That's new. There isn't, there's no historical parallel for a society where half of people go to university and half of people don't, but all of their representatives do. And, and it is very striking in America as well. I remember reading that.
1: 61% of the, of the white women who didn't go to college, they voted Trump. Yeah. So for them, education was more important than gender, if you said that he would be for men and against women, and say yeah, yeah, yeah. after the Hollywood access tape, grab them by the pussy, that yeah. no women would vote for him. Yeah, so you'd, but,
2: you'd think on that hypothetical question, the gender question would be the one you would ask. Exactly. And that will tell you nothing with Trump. You know, if you say to someone behind that screen, Okay, I'm going to ask you one question. Do you, you would have to say, do you identify as a man <laughs> or a woman? Um, and then you're told, woman. You don't know. Uh, because like you say, f- large numbers of women voted for Trump. What they had in common was n- not having been to college. Um, but and of course, we... Trump went to college. We should. You know, the other irony of this is yeah. when I say all politicians have university degrees, that includes all the populists too. You know, Orban has one, Trump has one, Le Pen has one. Uh, it's not like that there are populist politicians out there who say, I didn't go to college either, so I can speak for you. There aren't any of those. <laughs>
1: um, but the the thing, what does that do to universities? Be- if you say yeah. that education is the big yeah. explaining factor yeah. in, in, in well, it, politics... It, yeah, I
2: mean, it's one of them, yeah. Yeah, It's, but it's not it, the only one, but yeah. But it's a very strong one, Yeah. And,
1: and it wasn't earlier. Yeah. And you have a lot of books coming out of American universities explaining, how Donald Trump is a Terrible, threat to, yeah, the, yeah. to the political order, yeah. then it's like you, these universities... You're making it worse. Yes, these yeah. learning institutions, they become part of a political yeah, battle yeah. because they believe they defend truth and science yeah. against someone who's against, who's fake, fake news. Yeah. What does that
2: do to the university? So I, think, I do think it's really dangerous. Um, so I say this as someone who works in a university, Cambridge University, which is overwhelmingly pro- staying in the European Union, I would say, of the people I work with, you know, it's like 95%, 5%, something like that. And the danger, if that becomes the divide, so when politics is divided left or right, it's not like either side can say they represent the truth. Like, you know, people understand, we have our interests, you have your interests. Even when it's generational, I don't think, you know, old people sometimes think they know more than young people, but I think young people (laughs) think they know more than old people, you know. And in in the current technological world, I think young people do know a lot more than old people. So it's not like one side has a monopoly of the truth. The real danger, particularly with academics, I know a lot of these academics, (laughs) is they think that their side is the right answer because they think we're not voting like this because it's in our interest to vote like this. No, exactly. We're voting like this because we know more than you. To which my response is, no, you don't. <laughs> so with the Brexit vote, I was surrounded by people who thought because they're smart and because they wanted to stay in the European Union, they knew why the European Union was a better bet. But you just asked them a couple of questions. They had no idea how the European Union works. Almost no one. <laughs> knows. I mean, at Cambridge University, I could probably count on one hand the people that I, I don't know how it works. I could count on one hand the people I would go to and say, really tell me you know, how these institutions function. So what people do is they take their education as a sign that they are not tribal. And they are tribal. Yes. So if you're on the other side, it is doubly annoying. So it's not just that that tribe is opposed to your tribe. They don't even realize they're a tribe. <laughs> they think they're- st- They're accusing you of tribalism. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, you know, I think as a strategy, <laughs> yeah. this is not gonna go well. I mean, it's not gonna end well if You know, the people on one side of this divide kind of insist on the fact that they are above the divide. I mean, I look at, and there are some really good books about this. There's a great book called Democracy for Realists that I quoted in that article. It was published a couple of years ago, kind of saying we've got to be realistic about democracy. Everyone is tribal. Um, No one really votes on the evidence. We vote on the way we're conditioned to vote, and then we respond to certain things. You know, it's often very poorly correlated to what's actually going on. And that's true on all sides. So it's true with the educated and the less well-educated. So well-educated people do not spend more time weighing up the evidence in politics. They're better at defending their positions, which you know, we, we confuse these things. So well-educated people are much better at justifying their prejudices than less well-educated people. <laughs> yes. That is not the same as not having prejudices. <laughs>
1: No, uh, yeah, th- there are some great studies of that in America as well, how the liberals are able to hold on to their yeah. longer even than, uh, th- than conservatives because they r- really do believe that they're backed by science. Yeah, and you,
2: ha- you, know, you hear this. So we, we are living in increasingly divided societies and it is part of the problem, not just online, not just in echo chambers, but in, in everyday life. People meet fewer people from across the political divide than they used to. You know, they're, they're sending their kids to schools that are more full of kids like the ones they want their kids to hang out with. that you know, They're congregating in parts of town. You know, towns are becoming more segregated. There's more physical segregation going on. So there's not you know, crossing the divide. And then you hear these stories, I hear them a lot from Americans who sort of do cross those divides. And people from the sort of Republican side often say when they meet a liberal, wow, that person was even worse than I thought. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, knew, I knew they were snobbish and intolerant, but they actually think there's something wrong with me. And then liberals go to the American South and they meet Republicans and they go, wow, they're really nice. <laughs> like, even though they clearly think I'm mad, they're kind of, you know, you have your views, I have my. Yeah. So the danger is that the liberal side of that divide is the toxic side. So I mean, maybe, I don't know how you know a lot of people in these kinds of audiences might be on that side. And there's a feeling that all the toxicity is coming from the other side. But you hear a lot of it, You know, people who don't go to university, when they encounter people who go to university, they encounter people who actually disrespect them way more than the disrespect coming the other way. And I think we're tone deaf to that. And I see it, so I see it in Cambridge, I, you know, I can say this here, I see it all the time. <laughs> um, and I think it's going to end really badly unless we work out that what we have to do is to find a way to recognise that we are part of the problem. There was this view, universities, when Brexit happened, because universities depend on EU funding, they have these emergency meetings and everyone gets together and goes, what is this going to do to us? What does Brexit mean for us? Whereas the question is, what do we mean for Brexit? (laughs) And they never ask that question, because they don't think it's about them, because they're in the business of science.
1: There's another version of, of the dynamic that you were just talking about, namely that you have scholars writing books complaining about the polarization in American politics and then comparing Trump to Latin American dictators, yeah. showing how he's, how he's polarizing the entire yeah. political yeah. spectrum, yeah. going back to, yeah. to Newt Gingrich. But there, there's something, there's another point in your book that uh, did make a few headlines, even here, here in Denmark, and that surprised Oh, uh, me as well, when I, when I heard the first time, namely that you say that you consider Mark Zuckerberg a worse threat yeah. to democracy than Donald Trump. Yeah. That is a good headline.
2: Yeah, it is, that's why I wrote it. <laughs> I also wrote it because it's true. How do you explain that? Uh, uh, so I have a few, I mean, it, it, yeah. again, it's like a, you know, it's a headline thing. Actually, there's a few things that go into that. So it's partly to make a point about Trump, which is the thing about Trump is that the threat is in plain view. You can see it, right? It's not like with Trump, he's kind of hiding who he really is. Um, uh, and also, I think we know what kind of power he has. I mean, it's frightening, and the fact that he controls you know, the nuclear arsenal and so on. That, you know, there are bad scenarios there, but it's kind of visible, and I think you can see the ways in which it needs to be contained, and you see the institutions that are trying to contain it. And with Trump, you see him pushing constantly at the limits of his power. He's, he's probing for weaknesses in the institutions around him. I and mean, it's written there every day. I mean, this, the Supreme Court nomination was a perfect example of that, of him. How far can he push it? So you see the boundaries. Mark Zuckerberg has a kind of power that I don't think even he understands. Um, I don't think any of us, this is new. And he maybe even didn't want it from the outset. Yeah. He got um, it by accident. He got it by accident. Uh, I think, Mark Zuckerberg is probably a decent guy. I think he's a Democrat. Um, he's a liberal by all accounts. He's, I think he wants the, you know, the best for people. I don't think he has any evil designs on democracy. I find people like that scarier when they have massive unaccountable power. So he is less accountable, much less accountable than Donald Trump. He potentially, I wouldn't say he has more power. He doesn't quite have the capacity to destroy the world, but he has a kind of power that we're not familiar with I don't think he understands it, and it's you know it's really new. So he's discovering, like we are, sort of the ways in which this thing that he's built, which has kind of fantastic features to it. So I'm not saying that because Zuckerberg is a bigger threat than Trump that Facebook is terrible. Facebook, in many respects, is a most you know, one of the most wonderful. Creations in Human History, a 2.4 billion person network where people can share and communicate and in many ways it's enhancing democracy. It's giving people access to information. But that network is controlled by an organization that is way more hierarchical than the White House. Uh, People are working towards Mark Zuckerberg in a way they are not working towards Donald Trump. I know people who work at Facebook and one of them said that People who are working on a project at Facebook, there are only two questions that you ask of any major project that's undertaken at Facebook. The first question is, will it result in people spending more time on the network? Because that's the goal. The goal is to maximize usage. There is no other goal. the, the, The sort of PR goal is to create community and join the world together. The goal is to maximize usage. And the other question is, will Mark like it? Those are the only two questions Now, he could be the nicest guy in the world with the best intentions, but if you have a 2.2, 2.4 billion person network that is being run by people who only ask those two questions, it could do damage to democracies in ways that we haven't even begun to think about. Now, if you're just trying to maximize usage and you don't mind what it is that people are looking at to maximize the usage, and then the only person that you're accountable to is some 33-year-old guy who, who kind of, he knows stuff about tech, but I don't think he knows much about... The world. Um, with Trump, what you see is what you get, and with Zuckerberg, what you see is not what you get. Um, so, you know, if we're dealing with people with huge power for good or for ill, Zuckerberg scares me more. And then the last reason is that Trump will be gone. He may be gone in six months, he may be gone in two years, he may be gone in six, six years. years. If he's still there uh, after. January, whatever it is, if he he'll be almost after 80. Sexiest, yeah, if he if, if Trump has a third term, then everything I say <laughs> in this book, like, then it's done. Uh, but my guess is that Trump will be gone long before Zuckerberg's power is accountable to the democratic process. Zuckerberg and Facebook are around for a lot longer.
1: I remember I, I heard you making that point in a lecture. I believe was it at a King's College? It was on the podcast. Yeah about 9 months ago maybe 10 months yeah. months ago and then after that you had Zuckerberg coming to the European Parliament you had him in the American yeah. parliament and I was thinking is this democracy holding him accountable no. or is this just a theater pretending that he is accountable to democracy is that just
2: So the I would say the American thing is definitely theater in the same way that when Trump was elected he summoned all of the Oh, Zuckerberg didn't come, but Sheryl Sandberg came, um, and the, the Google guys came, and uh, you know, the the, Jack, um, the the Amazon guy, what's he called? Jeff Bezos. Yeah, the richest man in the world. Jeff Bezos came. Uh, so he summoned all of the heads of Silicon Valley to Trump Tower, just because he could. You know, it's like, <laughs> there was no point to that meeting. Nothing was achieved by that meeting. It was just, he was able to show, that's how Trump operates. Like, I'm gonna be president now, so they come. That was theater. When Zuckerberg went to the Senate, that was theatre. You know, the famous question that the senator asked him, which was, um, so your service is free. How do you make money? (laughs) Zuckerberg said, it's called advertising, senator. That is not holding, you know, like, and Zuckerberg has this kind of, seriously? Um, The European Union is doing something much more serious. I mean, I think there is Definitely, if if there is a sort of political space in the world where this is really being taken seriously, the unaccountable power of these monopoly tech organizations, it's in Europe. And the European Union is trying to regulate in various ways. The problem is, the European Union is trying to regulate non European corporations. So there's this sort of American model of of the tech world where you have Silicon Valley and you have Washington and they're kind of at odds with each other. And there's the Chinese model where you have Alibaba and Baidu, equally powerful corporations, maybe in some ways more powerful. Uh And they are joined at the hip now with the Chinese state. And then you have Europe where people are trying to regulate, but there are no European corporations to regulate. So we don't have any tech giants. That's why we're trying to regulate them because it's outside Europe. Yeah, but it's much harder for us to regulate them. I mean, the American state could take these things on and the Chinese state has already flexed its muscles. It's made clear to Jack Ma, you know, Xi Jinping has made clear to Jack Ma who's boss, so that's not for show, that's for real. Um, in Europe, we are trying to regulate organizations that we don't actually have the power or the authority. We can do a certain amount, but there is a limit to what we can do. And that's part of the challenge here, which is basically this is a Chinese-American world. I mean, it's, it's, it's Alibaba and Baidu, or it's Google, Amazon, and Facebook, and Microsoft and Apple. Um, And Europe can do a certain amount, but there's not that much Europe can do unless America does it too. And America might do it. I definitely believe that another American president, another American administration might well take on Facebook. I think if Trump is replaced by a Democrat, a Democrat could easily run on a platform which is really strong about tackling monopoly power in Wall Street, but also in Silicon Valley. And when that happens, the American state will win. The American state is still more powerful than Facebook and Amazon and Google. The American state has got an army and it's got the global reserve currency. Those are the two most powerful political weapons in the world, Uh, but it would need a politician willing to use them.
1: But I I would be
2: more, you know, I work in a newspaper.
1: We do believe in the the power of public opinion. And I do believe that the global public opinion, which has been created over the last two or three decades, is a new phenomenon with a certain With a certain power, and and I think is he not? Is Mark Zuckerberg not depending on some sort of legitimacy? And if the scandals keep rolling against him, if he's pictured as Mm. the new face of evil, as this little spoiled brat with Mm. a power that he doesn't understand, is he not um, vulnerable to the global public
2: opinion and condemnation? I think he's vulnerable. So he's vulnerable to fall in his share price. You know, he's, yeah. he's still a businessman, right? And the Cambridge Analytica scandal took about 20% off the share price, but you know, it needs to take 90% off the share <laughs> price for him to really be in trouble. So I think he is vulnerable, and I th- he's definitely very, very conscious of how it, he's presented now. And like you say, he's been really taken aback by this. Um, but you know, I'm not sure it's about legitimacy. If you think of what I said about how the business mm-hmm. operates, it 's about dependency. Facebook is trying to create a world where people depend on it. I mean it doesn 't matter whether they think it 's legitimate or not and you know, there are a lot you we think it 's serious here. There are large parts of the world, particularly in Asia, where Facebook is the Internet, so people their only means of accessing the Internet is because Facebook has given them for free Facebook, yeah. and they have no other means, and so it literally is a monopoly. There are parts of the world in which you take Facebook away. So say the American government decides that it's going to shut down Facebook tomorrow. It could probably do that. Or certainly it could make life very, very difficult for Facebook. It couldn't shut it down because it would move, but it could make it incredibly difficult for Facebook. That would be catastrophic in Indonesia. That would be a calamity in parts of South Asia where people would lose the internet. And they depend on the internet to, to survive. You know, Facebook is a resource that people... It's a, it's a public good... For some people, that's at least as important as any you know, physical public good. That's not the same as legitimacy. You know, finding a market where you capture a monopoly by giving someone a basic good for free in return for them using it forever is not legitimacy, it's dependency, and dependency is a really dangerous thing in politics, especially being dependent on an unaccountable power. Um, so I think he could probably go quite a long way without legitimacy, as long as he still has dependency. We could break up the dependency, but to do that, states would have to intervene. You know, the Indian government would need to take Facebook on.
1: We, we were discussing before we went in or whether your book was a positive, uh, optimistic book or pessimistic uh, book. I, I, I don't read it as a, as a pessimistic book. I think sure. there are very apocalyptic books out there now, and you, your, your book is not that. Yeah. And in the end, you focus on what could be on the way to something better and new, yeah. new, new possibilities. And to a certain extent, we do see, I think, democratic fatigue within the old yeah. party systems. But on the other hand, we also see a lot of new movements yeah. inspired by ideals, yeah. momentum, yeah. carrying Corbyn forward. We see a lot of passion about yeah. referendums, yeah. and you've been working on a commission yeah. Uh, that, that, were, that were evaluating the, yeah. the, the referendums. Could you tell a little bit about how do you see the referendums as a positive contribution to... So, I, so So I think
2: we need to distinguish between referendums like the Brexit referendum and more kinds of direct democracy. I think there are lots of ways in which we could have different forms of participation, whether it's sort of citizen juries, deliberative assemblies, you know, get, actually asking people not just what answer they want to give to a question, but what question they think should be asked. You know, the, Brexit was not the way to do it. So I was on this commission which was looking at how referendums could be run better in Britain in future, and it was a commission that included one of the leaders of Vote Leave, uh, a woman called Gisela Stewart, and a man called Dominic Grieve, who's the leading conservative in the Commons trying to block Brexit. So the two opposite poles. There are about 15 people on this commission from all, everyone agreed that the Brexit referendum was a terrible referendum. Even the vote (laughs) leave. like that's not how you do it. Like, ask a question that people don't actually have the opportunity to understand the implications of the answer that they might give, have minimal public consultation, have no account of how the answer is gonna feed back into representative democracy, have a short campaign, leave a vacuum, leave it unclear whether there'll be another referendum and so on you could do more participatory democracy in ways that involve people across the board, but it's the binary thing that's the mistake. So I think referendums are a disaster, frankly. I mean, I know there's been one in Ireland recently that seems to have been... So maybe what about on, abortion, Abortion. Right? So maybe on deep-seated, long-term moral questions, which is what it is, um, the referendum can be a way of kind of validating a change in public opinion, whether it's abortion or gay marriage or whatever. But on fundamental political economic questions, they're a disaster, but we need more participation. The other thing, just on the general point about whether it's an optimistic or a pessimistic book. So one of the things I try and argue in this book is that uh, we're not at the end of democracy. This is about how something might play out in the future. We're somewhere somewhere between the middle and the end. So if you take the story of democracy (laughs) to be sort of 50 to 100 years old. So we've probably got another 50 years. Who knows, more to go, maybe less, maybe more. I don't, think, I don't think this thing we call democracy is likely to survive in this form through the 21st century. It'll be radically different. Some bits of it might be more democratic, some bits might be less democratic. But I argue in the book that thinking about the end is partly thinking about, we have got time left. We don't have an infinite amount of time. We can't just keep doing this forever, election after election, hoping someone will come along and save it. We have to think about the future as a sort of relatively open set of possibilities, but you know, we need to do something new. And so I get, give the analogy in the book, it's like a human life. You know, the, the last third of a human life, a normal human lifespan, a long-lived life, you know, with sort of 70, 80, 90 years, so there's still, a, you, know, you could still have the best years of your life in the last third of your life. Sure. It's uh, common. <laughs> but not if you're still behaving like you're 25, you won't. Um, you know, not if you're still acting out in the way that democracies are. Not if you're still nostalgic for the days that have gone by. You have to give some things up. Now, you can't just carry on full pelt. Uh, you have to try some things that are new. If you're going to have a fulfilling final mm-hmm. stage of your life, you can't just carry on doing the same thing over and over and hoping it gets better. You know That's the definition of going down the wrong path. But we're in that kind of midlife bit where we don't want to give up all the stuff that we used to do and we know we need to try something new. So we're kind of stuck. You know We want to change, but we don't want to have to change in order to change. It's that classic kind of midlife. And this is trying to say thinking about the end is thinking about... The future is open, right it's It's not the past, the future we don't have to just repeat it's not we either repeat the 1930s or we repeat the 1970s or we go back to the 1990s. We could do democracy could be anything, um, but it will not be this. this thing, this thing that we've been clinging on to dearly is going to fragment some bits are going to go over here, some bits are probably going to disappear from democracy altogether. this technology is going to make some of our lives more, feel, we're going to feel more autonomous, more in control, more powerful. We're going to feel some people are more accountable. Other people are going to be less accountable. Some parts of our politics we're going to feel we lose complete control over. And we have to kind of adapt to that and make it work for us. And it will not work if we think, but we've got to carry on doing this thing, the whole of this thing, because this thing is done. That's the thing I think that's that's over, and my fear is that we're going to cling on to the thing that we know way past the point where it works, and miss our opportunities to do something new.
1: Well, I have one last question uh, for you because we only have 90 minutes here. I know you requested three hours, but we only have. Well, uh, 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 <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we only have uh, we only have one one and a half hours. Where uh, do where do where do you, where do you see what? is the event or the movement or the politician that gives you the most hope of finding that uh, political innovation? If you look at the last couple of years, uh, where where do you see something that that really surprised you? That was a new way of participating or a new way of holding someone accountable.
2: Um, So there's no question that some of the most dynamic democratic politics is not happening at the nation state level. You know, there are some really exciting city mayors around the world. There is, in America, Washington politics looks terrible, but like bits of Californian politics are really dynamic and adaptable. So there's, I think there, there is a lot of excitement and energy that can be channeled through... Lo- I mean, when I say local, I don't just mean local, local. No. I mean, you know, it's sort of... Uh, uh, you, you, see, you see it in lots of places. It, it's part of the fragmentation story. So you know, Catalonian politics is pretty dynamic at the moment, that there is some dynamism in Scottish politics. The Scottish referendum was actually a pretty good example of how you can inject energy into politics. But I'm wary of saying that there is a person, you know, that it's it's not Macron. If that's the answer you wanted me to give, it's not Macron. (laughs) Uh, Because I think we fixate on, you know, we are waiting for the man or the woman on a white horse to make it right again. And that's the dangerous route. So it's, you know, there's that thought that, Well, Trump, for people who think Trump is terrible, Trump is terrible, so we're gonna need someone really good next time to kind of undo the damage. Let's find the kind of, the democratic hero. That's not the thing that's gonna make this right. Uh, You get these new kind of politicians coming in, the institutions are still the same. You know, that person from the 1930s would say, you can change the, you haven't changed the bloody politics. (laughs) You haven't actually, you know, just electing someone new, unusual, surprising, crazy, mad, doesn't change anything. Real structural change, institutional change is much harder than that. And so I, I would want to resist the temptation of saying, oh, but you know, there's that guy in Latin America, if only <laughs> we had more like Not that. in Brazil. Uh, but I do think, I think you're right that, the, not in Brazil, <laughs> I think you're right that, the, the, that we're seeing a shift from party politics to something more like movement politics. And politicians who can really capture some of that energy but find ways to use that to actually reform some of the. Because the trouble at the moment, like with Corbyn, is you have the dynamism of movement politics, but that's just plugged back into the old way of doing things. Politicians who can take movements and make political change out of movements, that's going to make a huge difference. It hasn't happened yet but this is in this phase this is the you know the beginning of the middle of this phase exactly you know, the, the technology revolution the, the facebook revolution is what 10 years old or well, certainly the twitter revolution is 10 years old we're 10 years on from the financial crisis 10 years on from now like let's do this conversation again in 10 years and then I'll tell you <laughs>
1: Because I have the feeling sometimes that people will look back in 20 years when they found out the potential of participation and accountability that we have now and haven't used. They'll look back at what we did for 50 years and say, did they really call this democracy?
2: Yeah, they might. Um, I I mean, I genuinely, I think they might. They'll still recognize the ways in which it worked. And it had its own dynamism, you know, old fashioned representative party politics. It did, like I said, it had this very kind of, we'll keep trying until we find the right solution quality to it but it did stifle participation it stifled popular involvement it made people feel that they didn't have a stake in the system and people will they may well look back and say god it took them a long time to get it
1: i look forward to you coming back in 10 years thank you very much david runsum thank you
0: du lytter til sin podcast for gang i dubutik husk at du kan abonnere på podcasten i din foretrukne podcast app Hvis du kunne lide, hvad du hørte, så del det gerne med andre, der også kunne være interesseret. Hvis du har kommentarer til podcasten, så find Den Sorte Diamant på Facebook, hvor du også kan holde dig orienteret om kommende arrangementer i Diamanten. Podcasten er produceret af Kulturafdelingen på Det Kongelige Bibliotek, og musikken er af Søren Jakobsen.